how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. 
He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lies of your children, who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. This is the reading of God's word. In 2016, uh, The Atlantic put out a question. What was your biggest religious choice? And amongst the answers that came in, a woman who had rejected God wrote this. I feel compelled to share my story because it illustrates a fundamental flaw in religion that is often overlooked. As a young child, I enjoyed Sunday school and I learned to put all my trust in God. I was five years old when my mother, who had, been divor- who had divorced my father when I was two, met a monster and moved him into our house. He was a violent child molester who tortured me for the better part of a year, and the abuse was too graphic to describe here. I prayed constantly for deliverance, for help, for relief, for anything other than what was happening to me. He told me he would kill my mother if I told anybody what was happening, and he showed me a handgun to prove that he could do it. My five-year-old self was convinced that he could do it because he was just so mean. When I found a few baby birds that had fallen from a nest in our backyard, he fed them to his dog. When he entered a room, I flinched, and he would slap me for flinching. He forced me to drink beer out of a shot glass, pouring more and more in until I got sick. He threw me into the swimming pool and held out a hook for me, but once I grabbed hold of it, he dunked me over and over. He did a thousand other horrible things inscrutable things to me. But before long, my mom married him, and I couldn't understand how God could let this happen to me. She worked nights, and I begged her to take me with her so I could avoid being hurt. She took me sometimes, but most of the time, I was at home, alone with him and vulnerable. He would tell me, he would tell me to take a bath and show up in the bathroom in his robe and the sickening feeling was indescribable. I kept praying for a long, long time to a suffering child that seems like an eternity, but I knew God sometimes tested people's faith. 
God also punished people, so I tried to remember if I had done something bad that I deserved to be punished for, but I couldn't think of anything. Nobody had ever done anything bad enough to deserve what was happening to me. The only time I ever talked the monster out of hurting me was the night before Christmas Eve, and I said, please, no, Santa will see. Many times he promised me he wouldn't hurt me anymore, and I thought maybe that God had finally answered my prayers. But the monster always did it again. And I finally decided that God wasn't going to help. What kind of God wouldn't help someone like me? After a whole lot of suffering and misery, I finally figured it out. There was no God. Everybody had made a terrible mistake. I don't know about you, but when, when I read this story, I stagger under the weight of pain and loss and suffering that this woman went through. I think it's legitimate to ask the question, how can God be good in this? Where is God in this? And sometimes, even in these kinds of suffering circumstances, we ask the question, where is my sin playing into this? Do I deserve this? Am I so bad that I should that I should actually be receiving this kind of treatment? The reality is though that our questions only begin to get answered when we have a more robust view of God and a more full understanding of who God is and what he is like. You see, a God that is solely a God of love doesn't sufficiently answer these questions. A God who is merciful and gracious, although true, doesn't seem to meet us in our pain and suffering. So when we start to understand the fullness of God, God's anger, God's wrath, God's justice, we begin to wrestle more deeply with the sin and suffering that is in the world. So in in Lamentations 2, our our text today, we, we, we have this author who is looking at the devastation around him and wrestling with who is God and how should I respond? I think we learn kind of four things from this passage. First, that God is a God of wrath. Second, that we are a people of sin. And that there is an appropriate response to the sin and suffering we see. 
And then there's an unavoidable question that we have to answer. So first, a God of wrath. I mean, you you can't help but look at this passage and, and see that God is behind all of the suffering and pain that has happened to this people. Lamentations 2.4 talks about him as, an, as if God is like an enemy to Israel. He, God, has killed all who were delightful in their eyes. Everybody that brought them joy, God had killed. In Lamentations 2.8, it talks about how he is the one that ruins the walls of the city. He did not restrain his hand from destruction from the outside of the city to the very internal workings of the temple. God came and destroyed it all. In Lamentations 2.2, at the very beginning, it says, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob Jeremiah summarizes lamentations in lamentations 2:17 The Lord has done what he purposed he has carried out his word which he commanded long ago he has thrown down without pity He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. As Jeremiah looks around and what he sees is all of the devastation that is around him, all of the destruction and pain and suffering is there because God had brought it through the Babylonians. Over and over and over again, he says, he did this, he did this, he did this. The Lord did this. The Lord destroyed that. The Lord crushed here. The Lord purposed. And we stagger under the weight of God's wrath. It's no wonder that at the end of Lamentations, in verse 20, the question is raised, Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? That's a tough question. I mean, the author is is looking around at the devastation and he is actually seeing that people are so starving in this siege. That people are so desperate that they are actually eating their children. And he's asking the question, is this just? How could you do this, God? Do do we deserve this kind of treatment? 
Moms would be forced to eat their own children. That those that should represent you, that should be holy and set apart, are killed indiscriminately. You you should bring that upon us. Is that just? Is that right? Is that good? And I'm struggling with that, God. How could this possibly be so? We stagger at the wrath of God. Shockingly, though, the answer to the question that is raised, should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care, is actually yes. See, It's because the the people of Israel were a people of sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God outlines the, the, the blessings on one hand for following his law previous to this. He has... He has outlined uh, the Ten Commandments, how they, should, how they should worship him, what kinds of sacrifices they should have, what kinds of things that they should uh, do in terms of marriage and, and how they should think about the outside world. And so he outlines the law for them. And then in Deuteronomy 28, he says, if you follow this, this these will be the blessings that you will receive. And halfway through, he says, but, but if, if you would choose not to follow these things, if you would choose to not obey my commands, if you would choose to live lives of sin and unholiness, here are the curses that will come with that. And in verse 52 and 53, he says, this, is the, this will be the result of the curse. They, being an, an invading army, shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord God has given you. And you will eat the fruit of your womb the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. God, well before this this invasion happened, has outlined for them, this this is how you ought to live. This is the way that you can live a holy and righteous life. And if you do so, here are the blessings that will come. But, But if you choose not to obey me, if you choose not to trust me, if you choose to go your own path and worship other gods and not live a holy life, then this is the result of that sin, that I will come against you in the form of a nation, and I will surround your city, and you will starve to the point where you will be forced to eat the weak and vulnerable. That will be the curse of your sin. 
And the question is, well, were the, were the people actually sinful? In verse 14 of our passage in Lamentations, it says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. They have not exposed your iniquity, your sin. See, the, the author seems to presuppose, seems to assume that the, these people, those that are suffering, are, are actually suffering because their, their sin hasn't been dealt with. That they are, they're stuck here because of the actions of the past. Well, what, what are those actions? In Jeremiah 7, he outlines what it is that Judah has done to, to, to bring God's wrath upon them. And he starts in verse 9 by saying, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go out and keep doing these abominations. And then he goes on to say, and they have built high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I did not command, nor did it come to my mind. See, the, the people of Judah were thieves, murderers, adulterers, liars, idolaters. They sacrificed their own children at the altars of other gods. They oppressed the poor. They took advantage of those that came to their nation for respite. They neglected the widow. They used the orphan. See, the people of Judah were a people of sin. People so lost that they would sacrifice their own children to other gods. And so God came in his wrath. In the Old Testament, this is called the day of the Lord, and Amos talks about how this is, this is not a day that we should look forward to, because it's a day of reckoning for the sins that have been committed. And judgment will come upon those who have sinned. You know, the, the reality, though, is, is that we have to consider that 
we too sit as a sinful people. See, it's not just a then problem. It's a now problem. We sit in a society that does not value children. Over 100,000 babies are aborted every year. Of that 100,000, maybe 1% is because of incest and rape. 3% is because of health complications for their mother. 96% is a form of birth control. In 1992, in a Supreme Court decision where uh, Planned Parenthood was versus Casey, the Supreme Court said this, in some critical respects, abortion is of the same character as the decision to use contraception. For two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. People organize their lives in such a way that should contraception fail, that we have an alternative, that we can kill this child. And those children who do survive, those who do come into the world in Canada, we have 63,000 children in 2013 that sit in foster care whose parents have abandoned them to addiction or because they have been abused, neglected, not cared for, In the last seven years, there's been 1,220 cases of, of uh, human trafficking in Canada. 95% of those are women. 70% are under the age of 25. Most of that is for sex trafficking. And most of that is domestic not foreign. Young, vulnerable women are groomed and manipulated into drug addiction and then sex work. It's no wonder 
that Thomas Jefferson, when he looked at the United States, said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. This doesn't just happen at an institutional level. It doesn't just happen at a provincial level. This happens in our own lives. As we manipulate people and abuse people and lie and steal and cheat, and the, the wrath of God stands over us. So what then is an appropriate response? Well, first, we should weep over the tragedy around us. After the author has the author of Lamentations has has reflected on what God has done to this people and he looks around at the devastation what he says in verse 11 is my eyes are spent with weeping my stomach churns my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people because infants and babies faint in the street of the city he looks around at the suffering that is around him and he is brought to crushing tears He is sick inside of himself to the point of throwing up because of the suffering that is around him. The suffering that he's experiencing. Do, 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 do we look at the world around us and the suffering around us and do we, do we weep? Does it make us sick to think about People being used and abused for pleasure or convenience. Does it crush us? Does it make our knees buckle? An appropriate response to the suffering we experience in our lives and we see in the world around us is to weep. Secondly, though, an appropriate response is to take sin seriously. See, the, the, the problem in Lamentations 2.14 is, is that Israel didn't take sin seriously. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel come along and they, and, they say, and they say to Israel, they say to Judah, look, your sin will cause this to happen. Your sin will cause this to happen. And they continue in their sin. They don't take it seriously. They listen to people say, oh, no, everything's okay. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. We got it under control. Man, we, but we need to take sin seriously because at the end, after effects, at the end of it all, 
Israel's sitting there thinking, is this, is this, like, I didn't think that God's judgment would be this bad. So it, it starts with considering where is the sin in our own lives? Where is it that I contribute to the sin that happens around us? Where am I compromising? Not listening to God's word. Not trusting him. Where am I using other people for my own pleasure? We need to take sin seriously. But I think also we need to consider where is it that we are alleviating the suffering of others because of sin. It's not just a me question. So what are we as Christ followers doing to alleviate the suffering of people because of sin in the world? Where are we stepping in to save those that are in abused relationships or abusive relationships? Where are we standing in the gap for those that are being trafficked? Where are we acting as the hands and feet of God to bring mercy and justice and, and grace? We need to take sin seriously. Finally, an appropriate response, though, is to bring your requests, your burdens, your complaints to God. This God of wrath says in Lamentations 2.19, Arise, Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night. Watches pour your heart out like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. When, when, when this author, when this, when this man looks, looks around at the suffering, at the, at, at, at the absolute devastation that is around him, he points the people back to the God who did this. You're thinking, why? Why go back to the God who would do this? Why look to him for mercy? Why look to him for grace? Why look to him for healing and intervention? Well, it's because of the unavoidable question that all of this brings up. When Jeremiah looks around at this suffering, when when he sees how difficult the circumstances are, when he recognizes the depths of the sin in Judah, he asks this question in verse 13. 
for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Like I, I look around and I see the, 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 the devastation and the, the suffering that you're in and I think, who, like, who could possibly heal you? It's not anybody here. It's not, it's not as if you can pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. We're not going to be able to fix this. Who, who's going to heal us? And, and isn't, isn't that the, the question that we ask? When we, when we experience the results of sin and suffering in our lives. I mean, this, this girl who's, who's pleading to God that this man would stop doing what he's doing. Is, is, is she not asking, who will, who will save me from this? Who will bring justice to this circumstance? Who will draw me out of it? I, I can't. Isn't that how we feel when we, when we are crushed under the sin of somebody else? Who's going to bring justice to this circumstance? Who's going to make it right? I can't. And it's actually in these moments that a God who is full of justice, a God who is full of wrath, brings comfort. Now we know that he does not abide sin. And that he will Bring justice. He will heal. He is a God who is slow to anger, but does not lack anger. He is a God who is full of grace and mercy but will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. So it's actually a God of wrath, a God of anger, a God of justice that brings comfort when we are the victims of sin and experience devastating suffering in our lives. But it also answers the question because we know, I know, that in my life that there is sin that is so pervasive that its tendrils reach into my heart and mind in so many different ways that I end up being the one that brings suffering and pain to those around me. 
And when I read this question, I think, who can heal me? Not of the suffering and sin that I experience from others, but from the sin that is in my heart and my mind. When, when I reflect on the people that I've hurt and caused pain to, for my ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can save me? The underlying reality of Jeremiah in this passage is that he knows that God is a God of mercy and grace and that he will restore his people. And that's precisely what he did in Christ. So that even though my sin and your sin is vast as the sea, he sent his son, who had no sin, to be sin for us. And as we sat under the wrath of God, waiting for the day of the Lord and knowing that we rightfully should be crushed by his righteousness, instead, he sent his son to take that wrath on the cross for us. so that we could stand as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that instead of receiving the rightful punishment for our sins, we could receive the grace of Christ. So who can heal you? God can. Through Jesus. See, the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus, a perfectly innocent man, was for our sin. So one day, all sin will receive the wrath of God. The question is, will it be paid for on the cross? Or will you pay for it yourself? R.C. Sproul said, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment 
should be focused. As we face the sin and suffering in our world, when we look around and we see devastation that sin brings, the pain that it causes in our own lives and those around us, we should find solace in the fact that God will not let sin go unpunished. And our knees should buckle at the mercy of God that he should pay for that at the cross. So we should go into the world seeking to bring justice comfort and mercy to those who are suffering because of a God who had mercy on us and because of the wrath that we know is coming. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that we can know both your your mercy, your grace, and your anger, your justice, your wrath. God, I'm, I'm so grateful that you are bigger uh, than we can imagine. And that it's even in your wrath we can find comfort. The sin that's been done to us will be paid for. That you will bring vengeance Injustice, and you will make all things right. But God, more, more than that, we can cast ourselves on your mercy because we know that that wrath should rest on us. And so thank you for Jesus, that we can find rest in him. So God, I pray that we would be people of hope and amidst the suffering that we experience and the sin that we see that we would be people that tenaciously fight sin both in our lives and those around us to bring justice and mercy in this world and to alleviate suffering as we can, to be the hands and feet of you and to draw people closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.